This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome back to Mid-Atlantic. As you've probably heard me say before, uh, Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of great independently produced podcasts from all over the world. Uh, each month we nominate a show to specifically to promote, and this month is Dominic Perry's excellent The History of Egypt podcast. Um, why don't you go over to the Agora Podcast Network or to iTunes or Stitcher or a podcatcher of your choice today to give it a listen. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today I'm joined by Rob, the historian man Monaco from Connecticut and from a pub somewhere in London. We have John Ellidge of the New Statesman and City Metric. So hello, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Hello, gentlemen. I am your host, Roy Field Brown, in a rather chilly London. In a week that has seen a nation mourn a plane crash that killed 76, including the members of a Brazilian football team, we ask, what does a Richmond by-election actually mean? Richmond hardly looks like a place with much to protest about, but despite the river and the retail, people here have voted to revolt, as this constituency tries to change the course of Brexit. Good morning for you, Mr Farron. Good morning for you. All right. It's a good morning. Start of many more. You could forgive the Lib Dems for sounding optimistic today. They may have lost the big Brexit vote, but they've just won their own mini-referendum. The people of Richmond Park yesterday voted to send a message to Theresa May that the British people did not vote for a hard Brexit that will damage our economy and future generations and our standing in the world. Sarah Olney will now carry that message to Parliament, one extra MP, to add to the party's other eight. Is the Prime Minister really going to listen to you when you've still only got nine MPs? It's about listening to the electorate. Uh, now, what's happened at the moment is that the Tory party's main opposition has come for its own right flank. What the Liberal Democrats have shown is that out in the country that we have the ability to form that kind of moderate, progressive opposition. 
So, okay, there's a bit of, there's a bit of backstory to this one. So, Zach Goldsmith, who last last May uh, was the Conservatives candidate to become Mayor of London, where he ran a racially divisive campaign, which got him precisely nowhere, um, was also the MP for Richmond Park, which is a very posh bit of, of southwest London, conveniently located for the Heathrow flight path. Um, and he's always been a, a, an ecological campaigner. He kind of made his name as a green Tory, as the editor of The Ecologist magazine. So he's always been against the expansion of Heathrow. Um, so when the government uh, announced it was going to go ahead with plans to build a third runway at Heathrow Airport and thus expand uh, the number of planes uh, landing there every day, Zach Goldsmith thought to himself, well, I made a promise to my constituents. I'm going to resign the seat and vote a by-election and stand again on the anti-Heathrow ticket. So he resigned the Conservative Party. He resigned the seat of Richmond Park. It wasn't really an election about Heathrow, though, because the Conservatives decided not to put a candidate up against him. So he was still effectively the Conservative candidate, even though he resigned the party, he had Conservatives campaigning for him. In a year when the right is on the ascendant in just about the entire Western world, Zach Goldsmith has managed to get himself horribly defeated in two different elections in the space of seven months. He turned uh, a, a majority of 23,000 votes into a loss by about 1,500 to, to an unknown uh, Liberal Democrat, Sarah Olney, who is now the MP for Richmond Park. So I assume he's gone home to his massive house and a nine-figure fortune to think about what he's done and maybe reassess a few things. What does the result actually mean? Give us your gut. I think, I mean, it's being interpreted in some places as kind of a, a, a cry against the idea of a hard Brexit, which is just a totally bringing down the shutters and, and, you know, abandoning all international trade rules and so on. I don't really, I think that's a bit optimistic. The, the constituency of Richmond Park is is quite what would what, what be in the United States called fiscally conservative and it's full of incredibly rich people. But it's also very uh, metropolitan. It's very liberal. It was actually a very pro-Remain constituency because it's full of investment bankers who quite like international trade and the European Union. So it was willing to vote conservative just as long as the conservatives were kind of backing that form of, of international free trading liberalism. And if they're not doing that, then a lot of people are thinking twice. So I think it was a, a sort of protest vote against the fact that the government seems to be going for a very hard form of Brexit. But on the other hand, I don't think it's really representative. It's all commuter towns populated by the sort of people who, who have very internationally facing jobs, um, but also don't like paying very high taxes. Um, those are the sort of places that will be put out by the idea of a hard Brexit, but I don't think many of them are actually going to swing away from the Conservative Party in the general election. So I don't necessarily think this will have a massive impact on the government's stance. Where it might change things a little bit is the government has been acting like there is no uh, opposition and it can do what it wants because the Labour Party is in disarray. So everyone's kind of forgotten it really doesn't have a very big majority. It has a majority of 12, which has now gone down to a majority of 10, because if you lose one seat to a different party, then you effectively uh, lose two from your majority. Uh, so that this would not need to be repeated many times to seriously endanger the government's ability to get its plans through. Nonetheless, I think even if we get to a point where, where Parliament 
where the courts rule the parliament does have to rule on on the activation of article 50 i think it probably still will because however pro remain the individual mps may be in all the research i've seen suggests that in something like two-thirds of british constituencies a majority of the electorate voted leave um i think there is actually a, a, an interesting parallel with with what we've seen in the u.s with the electoral college where although hillary clinton had a pretty big lead in the popular vote the way it was distributed between the states means that she got absolutely thrashed in the electoral college and there's a, a similar imbalance here where the, the division of the vote in the, in the referendum was 52-48, leave to remain. But a big majority of actual constituencies would be would have majorities for leave. So it's something like two-thirds of constituencies w- would vote leave. So it's quite difficult to see the government coming under enough pressure from stuff like this to make them radically change their stance. I guess the, the the more optimistic interpretation from from a, a, a Ramona like me is that it might kind of give them political cover to say they have to adjust their stance. They're getting a lot of political pressure from their own Tory right back bench who want a really hard extreme version of Brexit. They could use this as political cover to say, well, actually, we're coming under pressure from the other side as well. So so we can't just give you everything you want. But even that, I sort of feel John, sometimes John, is a bit optimistic, John, and I just think we're screwed. John, John. There, there, there's, yeah. there's, an, there's another two of us. You've been, you've been talking for 15 minutes. Well, you didn't, you, you didn't interrupt. You just well, asked me I a question. Now. And I am expect now. to happen. <laughs> if you could press my buttons by saying, you know, would you like to tell us about this humiliating defeat? Oh, it was so good, though. I mean, the humiliation of it's the one John, bright spot John, in this John, entire John, year. John, you're still talking. Is you're still talking. There's a man who has everything handed to him on a plate. It's been embarrassingly defeated twice in the space of seven months. And I think this will be good for him. He will learn from this. He will grow. Well done. Well done, Zach. OK, I'm done. <laughs> uh, Rob. Um, it's been a long time yeah. since we've had you on the show. Now, yeah. um, are, are Brexit wins uh, fueling Trump sales, are they not? Um, mm. I know you've got bigger fish to fry than worrying about the, the, the machinations of uh, British politics and Brexit. But um, in a lot of US press, um, immediately after Trump's victory, they said it was Brexit too, didn't they? Well, I mean... Of course, because we have to have everything in kind of comparison to something else that we've heard recently, and we can't really come up with a clever acronym for this right now. So, Trumptastic, Trump Apocalypse, Trumpskit? I don't know. But they, of course, there was already, what was it, the Calexit? Ca- was that how it was pronounced huh? for California's exit? Oh. Did you hear about that? Yes, no, oh. no, no, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. So, I mean, of course, you know, listen, I mean, this is better than throwing gate at the end of everything, because that is just another ridiculous set of media acronyms. We can Trump gate, California gate, Brexigate. Um, We're hanging on. You know, we're I don't quite think that um, this is going to indicate something further, Uh, you know, with with Trump's. So you're not worried about Marine Le Pen in France? No, and I'll, and I'll tell you why, because I think oh, okay. that this is right before we started recording this. I just got the uh, the update that... Um, In Austria. I, his, right, or was it Hoffer, Hoffer, that he did not win. The, this uh, very, very right-wing uh, candidate did not win, and he's going to concede defeat. So, I mean, this is not... France this is a different situation. This to me situation. sounds like liberal complacency, and that's how we ended up with Trump, Rob. Well, 
I mean, it, can it I also might point be. out that Nigel Farage conceded that Remain had won the he, night he, of the break? That's very night. true. Within 20 minutes, he conceded, didn't he? And, and also said, the, the Trump campaign were very close to conceding Florida, which they then went on to win. So until we see the final count, I'm, I'm not going to get complacent about this. <laughs> I, I mean, yes, I suppose that there is some complacency here that that could sort of mean like as soon as you sit back and then this is going to happen. But I mean, in terms of, you know, this by-election being indicative of something larger, I think that that's just hopeful wishing. It's not going to I don't think this is going to necessarily show uh, a change in the political spectrum or this is some indication that the zeitgeist is swinging and this is going to be some kind of liberal upswing or whatever it is. This is I mean, you guys know more than I do about this, but I, I mean, no, listen, no, Rob, nobody knows what's happening in the UK when it comes to politics right now. If well, you know what? I, that's the I'll, only I'll thing you we though. do know is that we all don't know. This is just <laughs> uncharted territory. Then why did you territory. guys vote for who I thought was the, going to be the greatest candidate up there? And of course, I had to do a little more research on him because I was like, why is there a gentleman dressed like the Texas oil man from The Simpsons standing up there on, on the podium? <laughs> and my God, this man is a brilliant, brilliant politician. Howling Lord Hope of the official monster raving loony party. This is great. This is why we need a multi-party system in this country. I want to see more candidates like this guy this is it was fantastic everybody needs to look him up if you have no idea who i'm talking about i love their policies please you need to go to their <laughs> their site it's it's brilliant yes the, the the british electoral system does kind of throw up not only uh, more than three parties but also when it comes to by-elections we have a fair selection of nutters because you only need how much is it you need how much money do you need to put down to stand john it, it, it's not an absorbent amount of money. It's something which, you know, most reasonable adults could actually stump together. So you do get... I thought weird... it was about £5,000. It's the kind of sum you would you would be grumpy to lose that. I mean, £5,000 no, no, is, is, is not true. what it was that... before June 23rd, but it's still a substantial <laughs> pile of money. Well, no, £5,000, so... you know, before June 23rd was still £5,000 after. It's in relative to uh, the American dollar and the, and the euro that the values change but yeah you're completely right but in terms of american politics it's not as if you you have to go and find a million plus dollars and then be continuously going off to donors to try and find that sum of money to just stand so you have these fringe candidates that have their 30 seconds in the sun so to speak when the returning officer says i duly give you the election results for said same constituency and they stand there and they get like 15 votes or whatever and they get a huge round of applause from their three friends that are in the audience moving it it can actually backfire do you remember when um hartlepool elected someone dressed as a monkey hang us the monkey Angus the Monkey, yeah, but, but, his real name Stuart Drummond, who actually served as mayor for uh, for quite a long time. He was, well, he was mayor for more than a decade. He turned out to be quite good, but he had been elected while dressed as a monkey. So. <laughs> but see, in, a, in an age where everything has gone completely bananas crazy, doesn't it make more sense to vote for a guy dressed as a monkey? I'm just. I mean, just I don't saying. think it can have gone that well because since when they eventually abolished the post rather than continuing to elect the monkey they just scrapped the idea of having a mayor um but, but uh, this is before everything went crazy like they got rid of it in like 20 
12 or something but anyway they were they were ahead of the game <laughs> they were and there's a bit of a bit of a football theme uh, to this episode because i'm going to in my takeaways of the week i'm going to do a little bit of a football story but hangers the monkey was the mascot of hartlepool united the local football team and uh, they're called monkey hangers in hartlepool because during the napoleonic wars um, a ship was washed up on the Hartlepool coast because it's this uh, coastal town in the northeast of England and this monkey escaped and the locals uh, captured this monkey uh, tried to speak to it and uh, determined that this monkey was French and it had a trial <laughs> as a spy and was hung and this is an absolute true story wow yeah so hence uh, anyone from Hartlepool is uh, is a monkey hanger and uh, the wow. local football team has the mascot uh, Hangus the monkey there we go Wow. Back to pressing matters. Um, <laughs> so, John, you seem to kind of poo-poo the fact that this had wider resonance in the British political landscape. Um, I'm kind of... I'm always the glasses half full. You're a miserable sod. Um, surely, <laughs> doesn't... The, you know, the fact that the government's majority is so small, as you rightly pointed out, and the fact that, yes, a lot of constituencies actually voted to, to Brexit, but... Even some Brexiteers are basically saying, well, what type of Brexit are we actually going to get? That we should be able to cobble together some kind of progressive alliance against a hard Brexit in forthcoming elections. Because surely the only thing that matters in British politics now is, is Brexit. You know, all other politics is, uh, is been sidelined. I mean, two, two things, really. Firstly... Richmond is uh, a London constituency, so it's not... Rep- I mean, a lot of the Brexit thing is resentment about London. So I don't really feel like Richmond Park is representative of the country at large. Uh, and in fact, a lot of, a lot of um, political journalists were making jokes about how great it was that something had happened in a constituency they didn't feel out of touch with. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, this is, this is happening inside the bubble. I don't think it changes the broader dynamic. Um, but the other thing is the idea of a, a broad progressive alliance against Brexit. The difficulty is the Labour Party is kind of missing in action in this one. Because, I mean, I think both for, for, for two reasons. Firstly, like, it's quite difficult for the Labour Party to formulate a position on Brexit. Because if it stands against it, it will lose a load of votes to UKIP in the north of England. And if it doesn't stand against it, it will lose a load of votes to the Liberal Democrats in the cities, particularly London. So they're kind of fudging it a bit. But the other problem Labour have got is that the leadership kind of quite likes Brexit. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has never been that keen on the European Union. He's always seen it as kind of an evil capitalist project. Um, so he was he was literally the first politician the morning after the referendum to say, activate Article 50 now, and just you know, get on with this. So... Without Labour there, I, I mean, I think in, in the medium term, it's possible we're watching the slow motion death of the Labour Party. But as it stands, I don't see how you have an anti-Brexit alliance without the Labour Party there, because there just aren't enough um, MPs or other senior politicians to kind of pull that together and, and for it to actually have any serious influence. So, yeah, the glass is, the glass is not only half empty, the glass is half empty and is now smashed on the floor while children cry. <laughs> Rob, uh, 
over in the over in the US, the Democrats um, are suffering another kind of existential crisis, which is very similar to that of, of the Labour Party. What concrete things can the Democratic Party do going forward, which maybe us Brits might be able to learn in terms of opposing um, this rightward surge? Well, I mean, for starters, the Democrats can sort of take their heads out of their own rears. And I mean, almost immediately afterwards, the blame was immediately shifted towards everyone else but themselves. Why did they lose the elections? Well, it was Russia. It was 4chan. It was the Internet. It was every it was Bernie Sanders supporters. They didn't want to get behind Clinton. It was the misogynist. It was everybody but themselves. And and of course, you don't lose and say, well, what did everybody else do wrong? I think the the main problem here is that this has been something that people have joked about for a while and somewhat seriously that the Democrats really still consider most of this country flyover states. And they had essentially written off huge, huge swaths of this country that, you know, these are the people that, um, you know, Obama famously sort of off the cuff said that, you know, they cling to their guns and their Bibles, that it's like, well, we're not going to deal with them. They're too far gone. No, this is still a huge part of the country and they have legitimate concerns that have been written off. And without a, a someone to represent their voice, that's when you get Trump. So the first thing that the Democrats have to do is that they need to get rid of the leadership at this point. These are the ones that... Okay, that comp- Rob, Rob, but what... Yes? Okay, give us a couple of... You were actually kind of getting there. I maybe jumped in there a, a second too late, right? But... Just tell us what's going to happen in terms of um, opposing the Trump administration so us Brits uh, can learn a thing or two. Don't tell us about those flyover states. We know all of them. (laughs) Those basket of deplorables. The basket of deplorables, yes. The the first thing is that it, enough is enough. You need to stop telling people that their concerns about globalization and jobs, that it's it's made up and that they this is a real problem for a lot of people and you need to stop kind of talking down to them and tell them that you know just accept this new world now you got to figure out a new strategy for this all right second off so are you saying they need to be a bit more racist well this that's is, what i was thinking now no it doesn't have it's not about saying, racism Rob, what you're saying right is a little bit intolerance division and fear we've got to embrace that uh and no, 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 it's no. the 1930s all over again no, 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 no. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. The fact that more jobs are being lost to automation than to globalization, that is a real concern. And people don't want to talk about that because, well, it's too complicated. You know, so uh, fast food, you, worker, so fast food workers saying... ask for $15 an hour and McDonald's says, that's fine. We're going to automate our stores. Isn't that going to be wonderful? That's going to put more people out of jobs. And then, yes, you're going to have a demagogue that'll spin it. And now, boom, we're right back to sort of this original conversation of it's us versus them. Right. I don't really know what what you what, what we can learn from that, but I'm going to come back to you. Right, you, you stop right there. Wherever you are in Connecticut, you stop right there. <laughs> now, John, um, there were some Tories who switched their vote uh, on Thursday. Is yeah, and 
dependent on who you believe it was a third it was 20 percent but whatever some people who voted Tory in that last election did switch surely um british politics is all about those moderate conservatives now i just can't quite work out the mechanism this will probably not be the only seat the tories will lose to the liberal democrats next time there's an election because there are a fair few seats they unexpectedly won from the lib dems last time around which is how they got a majority in the first place we will probably see that happen again I just don't think it'll be enough to deprive the Conservatives of the majority at the point where Labour is in such retreat. Because, like, firstly, Labour's poll ratings are about as bad as they've been in my lifetime. Um, there's no sign of... Michael Foote got down to about 26%, didn't he? They're lower than that right now. Really? Last well, time I checked, they were 23 or 24. But who believes in polls anymore? Is there may be no, who there may believes be no in polls anymore? I mean, you're right, but... So far this year, the lesson has been that polls tend to underestimate the right rather than the left. There's not been much evidence that actually there's an enormous number of hidden left-wing voters we didn't know about out there that are going to come out for Labour in the event. When, when, when there's so little chance of the Conservatives losing the next election, I just don't see where the pressure is on them to kind of keep to the centre. Uh, they may lose a few seats to the Liberal Democrats, but they'll pick up more from Labour because Labour are losing votes to the Tories, they're losing it to UKIP. So I, I just don't think the Conservatives are under enough pressure to actually think about what the 48% of the electorate that voted against Brexit won here. Are you seriously telling me you can't see a scenario whereby, let's say, that May and her government kind of fudge something through um, next year? It's not the hardest of hard Brexits. We, somehow they cobble together some mechanism to say to stay in the single market and that there'll be a by-election a few months afterwards and that UKIP wouldn't wouldn't storm that one you know in a Tory seat in a safe Tory seat somewhere that there'd be enough Tory anger on the right whereby UKIP could start nibbling away at them in Tory heartlands but, but this was this was the theory we had a couple of years ago this is why everyone was so and this is where a lot of people were, thought that Labour had an advantage in the last general election because UKIP was seen as a big threat to the Conservatives. It was like, finally, there is a split on the right. In the event, that didn't really happen. And UKIP actually turned out to be a bigger threat to the Labour. Labour because, there are, yeah, there are a lot of traditionally tribal Labour supporters from working class backgrounds who vote Labour because you, it's just who you vote for but who actually have quite conservative values in a lot of stuff, like immigration, like trade policy, like defence and so on. And actually, it's those guys that UKIP are, are, are picking up. Um, also, they're clearly going to try and pitch themselves as an alternative to Labour in those kind of heartland, Labour northern, northern urban seats. That, Other than London, those are the only places Labour have still got, really. If they do successfully start eating into that, it doesn't matter if they're also taking a few votes from the Tories. There just aren't enough winnable seats out there for an opposition party to threaten the Tories. So all the political pressure on Theresa May is coming from her own backbenchers who might threaten their own position as party leader, rather than from the electorate who might threaten the government's position as the government, because the government's not going anywhere. But she could get pushed out by her own party. So those are the incentives she's going to respond to. Basically, long story short, we're screwed. <laughs> Rob, do you think we're screwed? You've spent the last few days looking at the British um, political scene through the prism of the Richmond Park by-election. Are we screwed? No, you're not screwed. None of us are screwed. Look at how long Britain has been around for. 
And people say, you know, this is uh, this is the most difficult time in this country's history. I feel history like I should be playing the Dam Busters behind you now, the Dam Busters theme. But go on, give us a... <laughs> yeah, people say, never has this country suffered so much. And it's like, we did go through a civil war, of course. So let's let's put that aside for a moment. No, this kind Listen, is this a difficult time where we're sort of trying to figure out, you know, what the heck is going on in the world? And, and yes, it is. But is this the end? Absolutely not. I think people are, you know, it, it, this is always, it's like, this is it, the turning point of a generation. Really, it's difficult, yes, but this is democracy. And democracy sucks. It's, I guess, better than all the rest. I still hold out hope for a benevolent, you know, overlord. But barring that happening, you can make the best of it. And we have to listen to everyone and drown out the voices that are insane. But, um, but that's and the so- whole point, Rob. If you have a 52-48 vote, okay, for something which hasn't really been defined, we're going to leave, but how are we going to leave? If you're part of that 48% and then somebody says we're going to leave tomorrow and slam the door behind us, you know, you've, you're not actually being listened to. But I'll tell you something, though, gentlemen. It occurred to me whilst um, scanning uh, my newspapers of choice, that actually what we have in British politics potentially is a realignment. And it's precisely on an American model whereby, and, and you yourself just said it, John, in terms if we look at where UKIP actually are eating into the Labour Party support, it's the fact that a lot of Labour Party supporters traditionally actually socially conservative. And actually, if, if you view this as... Um, social progressives against social conservatives that is the way that potentially how UK politics could go which is seen exactly in the same prism as US politics in terms of do you believe in um, gay marriage and that would be a liberal stoke progressive thing socially liberal in in the US and if you don't you know you absolutely are um, a Republican and there is a slight overlap in terms of moderate Republicans but really uh, we're looking at US uh, type politics in terms of it's all about social attitudes it's not really about economics people are voting on innate conservative or progressive views that's that's what I think hence you have this helter-skelter view whereby a party from the far right in the UK UKIP can potentially make heartlands in traditional, traditionally left of centre seats. Am I wrong, John? No, I mean, obviously it's about awesome. social values. Let's well. move on to the but, next section. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I think it's a mistake to divide the two. I think it's because we've got to a point where there's such a consensus on economic issues that, you know, we've had austerity, we've had this idea of, like, well, we need public sector, we need more private involvement in public services, We've got this idea that actually the government is more of the problem than the solution, so we should be trying to shrink the government. We, you can't intervene in markets. You can't tell corporations what to do. But, so but that's actually, not you really can. the choice but, 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 on economically. No, 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 but, but, but I'm, I'm not saying, no, I'm saying. I'm saying we act like we can't. Okay. I'm saying all, right. all the political parties have landed on this position where, like, you know, these are the sets of economic policies we pursue. Or more so to the point, there's no it's... point voting on economic grounds. You vote on social issues because it's all you've got left. Well, exactly. And more to the point, when a left of centre party is in power, the right say we've got no money, you've got no money, there is no money, so you can't spend any money, and they act accordingly. 
But then you have Trump and he's talking about, um, you know, massive infrastructure spending. Where does that money come from all of a sudden? So it'd be interesting to see what Paul Ryan and uh, the Republican kind of Congress do when uh, the debt starts to spiral. But anyway, we're mixing up our topics wildly here. And I know it's kind of my fault. So considering we talked a little bit about Trump, I think... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We should go and see how Mr. Trump has been doing in the last month. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. I mean, I was eight years old, interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in, um, in a classroom for a year. And... Awesome. Yeah. Um, for me... I well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to to win in the end is that for me it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together. Catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every Friday afternoon on Friday 15, which you can get, of course, from a podcatcher of your choice. In declaring this national holiday, President Lincoln called upon Americans to speak with one voice and one heart. That's just what we have to do. We've just finished a long and bruising political campaign. Emotions are raw and tensions just don't heal overnight. It doesn't go quickly, unfortunately. But we have before us the chance now to make history together, 
to bring real change to Washington, real safety to our cities, and real prosperity to our communities, including our inner cities. So important to me and so important to our country. But to succeed, we must enlist the effort of our entire nation. This historic political campaign is now over. But now begins a great national campaign to rebuild our country and to restore the full promise of America for all of our people. I'm asking you to join me in this effort. It's time to restore the bonds of trust between citizens. Because when America is unified, there is nothing beyond our reach. And I mean absolutely nothing. Let us give thanks for all that we have. And let us boldly face the exciting new frontiers that lie ahead. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America. It's been a month since Donald Trump won the US election to become President of the United States. How's he doing in his run-up to his inauguration? Over to you in Connecticut, Mr. Rob Monaco. It's interesting. It's exhausting, but it's it's interesting. I, I've, it's almost like you wake up every morning and you're like, well... I think maybe it's it's starting to settle in that this is really happening that that a man whom I, I used to uh, read about in um, the old comic strip Bloom County is having his brain transferred into the body of of a cat and and he would do all these weird things because one time he tried to sue the artist of this of this comic strip um, that that he is now going to be president of the United States and then it sort it sort of kind of settles in for me and then I read about something happening and then it's like nope. Nope, I'm I'm changing my mind once more again. I can't believe this is really happening. I can't believe that China is launching a, a formal diplomatic complaint against us, and that he is also tweeting about how. Whoa, uh, whoa, the... whoa, whoa, whoa! Which China are you talking about? Oh, that, oh. That... <laughs> there is only one China. There is only one China, of course. That there is a one China policy. Yeah, the rebel so... province. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> I. This has been quite a. I mean, I don't even know if whirlwind is is putting it mildly enough. I mean, tsunami, category five hurricane, uh, the 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 giant storm on Jupiter, maybe is the is the equivalent. Um, I think the the most recent, of course, comedy bit is that he SNL does a whole kind of skit about Trump tweeting too much, and right afterwards, Trump tweets about how SNL is not funny anymore and it's unwatchable. I mean, this is this is getting to the point where I, I it, it's very hard to remain um, unbiased and and try to look at things objectively, and and I really i really am um it's i don't i don't understand i I know i get it and 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 i know part of me was was kind of interested in it sort of well what if we elect someone who doesn't have any political experience that actually might be interesting maybe it would actually work out better enough with this whole you know you come in with all the baggage but I don't. I don't know if that. You mean political it's a good idea. baggage as opposed yes. to business type fraud, right. corruption baggage that Trump. Right, got. because I, I'm under the the assumption though that while you may not have experience at the job, you at least have a solid education in 
American politics. You took your civics classes in high school. You took your political science classes in college. You are firmly aware of the seven articles of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, how many members of the House of Representatives there are. You know, you can name the Supreme Court chief justice and et cetera, et cetera. That part upsets me because I, I like to pretend that I'm educated and, and I'm aware of certain things, but I also would never seek out an office where I could do actual damage. And I think that the biggest thing right now facing those people who, you know, would not consider themselves certainly liberal, but you know, like to think that America does the right thing and that we can be a force uh, of good and, and progressive ideas. You know, there there's legitimate concerns out there. And, and I think the big one right now is the fact that you can read the news and you can read up on all of the hypocrisy that is already happening. There is no draining the swamp. There is no, uh, you know, honoring those ideals. I mean, everybody knows that candidates say things on the trail that they don't actually go through. But this is borderline lying. Um, And it's but maybe it's not even lying because it because it's flat out like you know you could look at somebody in the eye and say I'm going to tell you I'm going to do this I'm not really going to do this and they're like well but you say it like it is though. John, you're a student of American history. Um, I know that you're looking at this Trump administration and you're saying it's just like Lincoln and his team of rivals, aren't you? You you are impressed. In that the election of Lincoln led to a civil war in the country breaking in two, then there probably are parallels. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, it was a war over, over the rights fair, of minorities. That was just, so, just yeah, a the more I think about that. To be fair, uh, Trump to Lincoln. is a great, a great communicator. You know, the the, the, the Gettysburg Address is, is a famously short speech. You could probably do that in what ten tweets. So, <laughs> <laughs> so did you say you were impressed? I, I can't remember Th- through through your humour, sir. We are you impressed? You know, he's got uh, he's talking to Mitt Romney. I know he hasn't been confirmed. He might not be, but he's uh, he's got a nice racist in there, Jeff Sessions. But then he's got uh, Nikki Haley. So he's got a woman of color who really gave him a hard time during that campaign. You know, so he hasn't just gone for his pals, has he? In Wall Street, he has has he largely. Yeah. I oh, mean, there's no billionaires in this cabinet, surely. Jeff, just him. Jeff's- there's there's the Goldman Sachs guy. I can't remember oh, what yeah. post is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a billionaire. Okay. I mean, the fact that he's got Steve Bannon, whose main job prior to this was running Breitbart, which is a far-right trolling website. The guy's a white supremacist, and he's going to be in a senior position in the White House, in one of the most diverse countries on Earth. And, you know, we were cracking jokes about Trump changing U.S. policy towards China on Twitter that's this is not a joke this is legitimately something that could set off world war three um and you, you know it, i i really think that godwin's law actually has a lot to answer for because it makes it so difficult to talk about this kind of political situation without sounding like you're being hysterical but genuinely we, the u.s now does have a president who could inadvertently spark a nuclear war in a fit of peak i don't think that's an exaggeration and that's that's terrifying 
and you know, he hasn't, he hasn't even taken over yet. He doesn't even take over for another six weeks. And already the amount of harm he's managed to do, God knows the state of what the state of the world is going to be after he's had access to the nuclear button for a year. Rob, is Sorry, it... I'm finding it quite difficult to make jokes about this one. <laughs> Rob, um, he's tweeting at three o'clock in the morning. He's tweeting about Hamilton, uh, the musical. Um, but he's not really trying to reach out to that 40... I was going to say the 48%. Sorry, let's get the, let's get the uh, proportion right. The 52% of Americans that didn't actually vote for him. Uh, is that really what we should be concerned about? Possibly not. I mean, when it was, you know, it's when it's the other side, you know, you don't really see a, a Democratic candidate. I mean, we haven't. I mean, well, I tell Obama, you, I, listen, you're, you're, you're the American here. But what you don't get, what no other, other president has done is after they've won the election, keep campaigning by doing a victory lap. Yes. And I, and I think that this is this is shocking to see a, a sore winner, which which I, I find sets sets a, a, a really bad precedent going forward that this is this is reflected in society as well that this is something that as someone who you know you, you try to do the decent thing you try to show good examples you try to set the right examples for the next generation as well this is not appropriate behavior and especially in a, you know the president as much as people have you know say terrible things there's not as much respect as maybe there used to be and maybe there you know it's it's a president you don't have to have that much uh, respect for it that's why we don't have a king in this country but there should be a, a modicum of of dignity and decency here so the fact that you have them out there and he's saying these things i don't like that i really really find that to be offensive to what the founding fathers set about we have these people brilliance i mean jfk talking about jefferson that great quote of his when he's got all those foreign dignitaries at the table at the white house and it, you know gentlemen never has there been uh, before gathered at this table a, a gathering of, of such intelligence or or perhaps when Jefferson sat here dining alone, you know, we're going from that, a man who could write Greek and Latin at the same time in, in two hands to a man who, you know, types with his thumbs on his phone. This is uh, appalling. And, and quite frankly, it's disgusting. And I don't like the, dis the direction that this has been going in right now. I would be much different if we could bring on some but you're talking uh, you know, uh, about a 240-odd-year sweep of history. That's the direction you don't like that things are going in. You want scholar presidents, is what you're saying. I do. I, I firmly believe in Gentlemen Jefferson's of vision. Absolutely. Well, but I, I thought we debunked that the last time that you were on the We'd, show. Well, because I mean, John, yes. and, John and I are both Hamilton men. So moving swiftly oh, on. Yes, moving well. <laughs> swiftly on. Mr. Elledge, identity politics. Where does it go in the post-Obama world? My Hamiltonian brother... Well, as as a straight white man, I think I'm the ideal person to talk about identity well, politics. Uh, <laughs> I'm with you, brother. <laughs> we are getting a lot of straight white men, frankly, who are writing columns basically saying the left's big problem is it's focused too much on identity politics um, and it should therefore stop doing that. I think that's something that you can only think about when your identity 
doesn't impact your political existence. The great thing about being a straight white guy, I can make these incredibly self-deprecating jokes about how I don't know what I'm talking about. And everyone will assume it's kind of an adorable pose. When actually, no, I just don't fucking know what I'm talking about. But I get away with that because, you know, I, I'm a white guy. I don't have to constantly sort of demonstrate my own authority to speak. So it's very easy to kind of think about how, like, well, we should stop talking about racial issues or we should stop talking about feminism or we should stop talking about um, trans rights or whatever because they don't affect me. I think that's probably not helpful at a time when the left coalition is increasingly dependent on actually talking about these issues that the right is never going to touch. I think, actually, apart from the fact that, you know, shutting up about this stuff is an act of moral cowardice, I think it's probably about a political strategy as well. So I definitely think that identity politics is here to stay. Um, what we really need to do is remind everyone that, you know, straight white man is an identity too. Mm. You're another straight white male, aren't you, Rob? Oh, last time I checked. All right. So you're, ob- <laughs> you're obviously part of the problem. Right? I am. So, okay. Yeah. So why don't you just like pontificate about stuff and without getting to the nub of the issue uh, for, for a couple of minutes? Go. Well, I mean, as a straight white man, ages 18 to 35, whose every thought and opinion is listened to with great intensity in this country, um, <laughs> I find that I—it has been—it has been increasingly more difficult uh, to be a straight white man, ages 18 to 35, in this country um, lately. And I think there needs to be more to take care of us, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, you, have you felt somewhat marginalised recently? <laughs> <laughs> that depends on how much I can keep this joke going on for. <laughs> um, it, it's uh, okay. I, okay. There is a serious point. I suppose the serious point is Clinton lost the electoral college vote, but she won the national popular vote. Not that that matters for anything other than just adding up those votes. Um, so you could say that identity politics won because there is enough of a coalition of people who see themselves as, for whatever reason, marginalised from uh, the wider political and economic system. So where does the Democratic Party go forward in terms of still being the champion for uh, the poor, the black, the brown, and for people who have um, trouble getting their legitimate uh, cries for equality out there where where does it go forward what is that strategy for the next four years rob right now it it seems to be that what you know with like bernie sanders the democrat not democrat he is sort of trying to push the party towards you need to double down on the whole the democrats are on the side of history that this is increasingly a multi-ethnic multicultural country it needs to be much more about including everyone who is disenfranchised or has been historically disenfranchised i i think that that is from a historical maybe lens that is probably the right way to go. It, it, let's go back really, really far in time. Let's, let's go back to let's go back to Rome. Rome had an opportunity to mm. include the Germans. They the Germans are at their doors. They are becoming the largest sort of non nor like typical ethnic group of the empire. And what did they do? They shut them out. 
They treated them horribly. I mean, some of the most despicable acts in Rob, history. I don't, don't want to tell but a you, classic historian. It was a rebellion. They bring it down and the tactical decision that the Germans weren't allowed in. They ran off a bunch of eagles and killed people. Listen, stop, stop. Rob, for you to build your analogy properly, right, you need to go something like this. Far be it from me to tell a gentleman who's producing a podcast called The Podcast History of Our World. But it goes something like this. So there were the Romans, right? Then they decided uh, to expand and they came across the Etruscans and they said, hey, Etruscans and people in uh, Latanium, you can become Roman citizens too. So they expanded the franchise. Then they came across the Gauls and they said to the, and they defeated the Gauls and they said, hey, Gauls, you can be Roman citizens too. Then you arrive at uh, the Rubicon, so to speak, which is, hmm, these Germans, right? They're too different from us. We're not going to allow them in. Or, and more to the point, what we are going to do is fill our legions full of, full of German generals and, and Germans fighting Germans and the Hun, but they weren't citizens. Now continue with your analogy. Well, far from it uh, to, for me to, you know, <laughs> well, what, what about, well, so that, you know, where's the love for the Sam Knights, Roy Field? I mean, <laughs> but, fair enough, fair enough. And, and that is, I think, you know, you, you did, that's an important part that as much as they are rejecting the Germans, they are letting the Germans fight for them, exactly. let them do all the work for them, let them be the bus boys. And the, oh, wait, I think I'm, I'm mixing up my analogies right now. And this is, but it is an important topic that, we are at a crossroads where you have part of the country that wants to ignore the changing landscape and then you have another part of the country that says but what's what's the big deal this is isn't this the point of america that you know i love it when i when i you know you ask a classroom of students you know what does an american look like it looks like everyone in the classroom that's supposed to be the beauty of this country and that is, if I had to say to the Democrats, what are you going to do? Don't back down. Keep moving forward. Keep embracing this this bigger and bigger coalition of everyone as possible. That means going into areas of the country that have they, the Democrats have written off, though. You need to include the disenfranchised white worker who is in some steel mill town in Pennsylvania or in the backwoods of Alabama or something like that. You've got to include them as well. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Did they really write them off or did they just forget about them? John Elliott, you answer. I actually think that's a terrible false dichotomy. I, I don't think they wrote them off. I think they wrote them off as possible voters. And they thought, this is not where we're going to win this election. I don't think they stopped caring. I think it's just, there, there is a major problem worldwide that as uh, developed economies have moved to services, manufacturing has become less labor intensive. Small cities and rural areas have just needed fewer and fewer workers. Um, I don't actually know what you do about that without turning back the clock on globalization. Um, you know, since globalization has created an enormous amount of wealth, I'm not sure that's a great idea. Basic but nobody universal has a solution basic universal income well yeah I'm, i mean I, I think that's probably a good idea too yeah so but but the fact that the three of us agree on that doesn't mean they're suddenly going to be able to get it through congress as a way of sorting out the economy in youngstown ohio mm. you know i just don't see what 
uh, any president could do to sort of bring back mining in Scranton, Pennsylvania or whatever it is. Or, you know, the same we have the same problems in the north of England. It's just not clear what buttons you press to kind of bring back an economy that just isn't there anymore. So I don't think it's so much around not caring about these people. It's just nobody knows the answers. But um, isn't this the point of what we do over here, though, John? I mean, we're just commentators. We don't have to solve anything. We just have to criticize it. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I'm, re- I'm really I'm quite good at that. So <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> Solving, not so much, but the criticizing, I've got that down. Yeah, there we go. See? <laughs> Rob, yes. this is probably a question which I've, I've posed to you, to you before. At least I've posed on this program before, but I can't remember the answer. Right. But I want someone to explain to me this. Number one, in presidential elections for the last, I don't know how many, uh, 20 years, um, people have voted Democrat more than Republican, all of them bar one. More people vote uh, for con- congressmen, vote Democrat than vote Republican, though there are many more Republican congressmen than there are Democrats, right? Senatorial races are somewhat different and, admittedly, there are more Republican uh, governors than there are Democrat. Why has the Democratic Party been so supine under Nancy Pelosi uh, in terms of gerrymandering and actually the structural problem so that... um, Apparently, there can be America can be can be portrayed as this fifty-fifty country. Where actually, if you look at the votes that get piled up, America is more kind of fifty-five, forty-five in terms of the Democrats. Why has the Democratic Party institutionally for the last ten, twelve years not really bothered about gerrymandering and the basic unfairness? And I'm not talking about the Electoral College here, because that's, a, that's, another, that's another argument, but let's just put that to one side. I'm talking about gerrymandering on the ground. And then why is it that the Democratic leadership, party leadership, is, is so reactionary when it comes to campaigning? on the ground go <laughs> I, I, it, it is sort I want of an you question. to answer for the DNC go but it is sort of an endearing question though why are the democrats almost to the point of it almost seems like they're spineless in some extent that the republicans are out there just flagrantly bending these laws to suit their needs and and and, and again the democrats etc yeah it, it it is a it is a real concern, and and I think that in terms of where the Democrats obviously the Democrats get their power from the cities. You know, you have eight million people in New York alone that o- overwhelmingly vote Democrat, but that's only one city though, and it doesn't affect the larger scale in a sense. Meanwhile, you've got half a million people in the entire state of Wyoming, and they're going to vote overwhelmingly Republican. I think. I, I mean, gerrymandering is, is not the answer. And I know uh, Intelligence Squared, which is another, it's a great debate podcast for those people out there who are looking for something like that. They just did an episode on, you know, whether or not gerrymandering is, is the problem here. And the, the audience voted, well, I don't want to spoil it, but the, the, the question is. I bet that audience was gerrymandered as well, though. Well, I mean, it's it's. I forget if it was in New York. Mm. I think it was it was. In oh New no! York, it sounds it, like a. If it was a, if it was in New York, that, that audience sounds informed. Go. 
Uh, yeah, well, you, you'd, you'd think so, at least. I mean, God damn but, it. But, the, but, the, but this is a, a question. I feel like the Democrats want to do the right thing, but that means not fighting as much. And then, and you, you typically, I mean, yes, Democrat uh, supporters, they can get fired up about issues and they can be passionate about a lot of these issues, but they don't seem to have the same level of, I'm willing to die on any hill to support my issue. There seems to be a point where they're much happier compromising. And while I feel like that is a very noble thing to have, that unfortunately is is shown in the loss of seats. Democratic voters typically do not vote in larger numbers in off-election years, whereas Republican voters do I think that that is a problem with it. I feel that maybe, you know, Democratic voters are too complacent. Maybe this election is the wake up call they need. Maybe it's not going to make a difference at all because ultimately they're going to be like, oh, man, Trump, that guy. Well, I knew I was supposed to remember to do something on November 8th, but what are you going to do? John. I don't know why I'm doing this and why I'm about to say what I'm about to say, but please, please help us keep our progressive peckers up, right? Let's round off this section with you telling us that all is not doom and gloom on both sides of the Atlantic. Go. If the world survives the next four years, I think there is a very good chance of a swing back to the left. I think, genuinely, I think this is my positive take, is I think um, Trump in the US and Brexit here will probably kill off a few uh, right-wing ideas once and for all by showing quite how unworkable they are. But the question is, firstly, whether it might come 2020 in the US, the Voting Rights Act may be so gutted that even if the Republicans can get fewer people to vote for them, they can still win. And secondly, whether we're still going to have a world or whether we're just going to have a pile of radioactive cinders. So that's a happy ending. (laughs) Uh, you know, and Royfield, if I can just add in the, uh, the the word of the day, or maybe the word of the week for people, mm-hmm. emoluments. That's going to be the word of the week, emoluments. As in the emoluments clause for people who maybe are hopeful of, of something well, happening. We, we, we have an, an email later, uh, which is going to kind of touch on that and the kind of conflicts of interest, uh, for, you know. <laughs> From potentially from foreign governments, or at least how do you say no to the president? President, but you can talk about emoluments later. A good 18th century word, uh, gentlemen. Let's go on to our takeaways of the week. Right now, it's the time of the show whereby we can just talk about anything which has got nothing to do with politics. Over to you in London, Mr. John Ellidge. What's your takeaway of the last seven days? So we've been watching a new Netflix show called The Crown, which is um, going to be a very slow um, accounting of of Queen Elizabeth II's reign as monarch. It's, you know, not a lot happens in it. It's they try and get drama out of things that frankly aren't that dramatic, like the day in 1952, it got a bit foggy. It's that kind of show. Um, But it's beautifully shot it's wonderfully acted with uh, claire foy as queen elizabeth and matt smith late of doctor who as prince philip um i and think it's a, a brilliant prince Churchill. Philip. 
Yeah, I, he's I, amazing because he's so he's 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 so likable, but also clearly a bastard, but also very clearly like Prince Philip. It's a wonderful performance. Absolutely, it's, yeah, it's 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 very slow. It's the kind of thing you can kind of you can watch while while kind of half paying attention to your phone or whatever, which is kind of nice sometimes. But it's yeah, it's 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 just it's a wonderful. Um, recitation of the, of the political status of the monarchy and the tension between uh, the queen as a human being and the queen as as a, uh, as, as a constitutional symbol. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I quite like about it is, by all accounts, they have six seasons planned to cover the entire reign. Which, if you think about it, means they're they're basically betting she's going to be dead by 2021. So, <laughs> if, if not, they're presumably going to have to do what Game of Thrones have done and just start making stuff up. So, watch this space. <laughs> Rob, have you watched any of The Crown? Uh, no, my parents were actually talking to me about it and how much they they were loving it, and uh, it's on our it's on the list. I must admit, I, I I loved it, and I would slightly disagree with John and say that it's. Uh, incredibly slow um what i loved from it was you get the parallel of the social and the political history and you're completely right though john that you do see the conflict of these people who are very human you know the queen and prince philip etc and her dad king george you know them actually as people who just happen to be uh, a royal family and uh, kind of the conflict therein but i loved all of the um i love seeing the declining churchill where he in in cabinet he gets up and, and pisses on the floor you know he's just losing control of of his body and uh, the tensions within you know eden and and the tory kind of cabinet and i loved all of that and uh, to say that not much happened on that kind of foggy day there was over 2,000 people died in London because of that fog, John. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was quite a, it was a big well, deal. Well, I did get time. you wrong. I did get, I, I completely got you wrong. It was a big deal. And it, you know, it started the Clean Air Act, etc. kind of came on after that. I don't think they do a brilliant job of selling it as a big deal. Um, something I do like, though, is the way they're, kind of, they're setting... Um, Egypt's Colonel Nasser up as the big bad for season two, so we're clearly building to the Suez crisis. So yeah. that's going to be fun. No, no, I, I, I did see that one uh, kind of coming too, and I thought, yeah, that, that was pretty good. Um, Mr. Rob Monaco, over to you, sir. Um, what's been your takeaway the last seven days? Um, my takeaway this time around um, is a documentary that uh, my wife um, made me watch with her. It's called Hate Rising. It's by mm -hmm. um, the Univision uh, journalist Jorge Ramos. Um, he was kind Isn't of famous. The one that Trump had a go at. Yes, the okay. one that Trump threw him out, and then as he's being told to leave, this guy tells him, get out of my country. Meanwhile, he's an American citizen. Um, it was very interesting. It was very uncomfortable at times to watch it. I mean, he is literally showing up at... Um, uh, neo-Nazi rallies, KKK meetings, um, with some real scary types. Um, yes, I am a white man ages 18 to 35. The KKK 
absolutely lynched Sicilians uh, back in the days. The largest mass lynching in this country was committed against Sicilians. Um, the, I can't believe that this is still a thing. Um, and it was very scary. Um, and of course, the more you know history and you tell you know these people, you know, oh, get out of our country, Mexicans. And then you're like, oh, this country was like half Mexico in the beginning. Never mind the Native American part, but no, it was very, very interesting. I mean, I'm. It's obvious. You watch this. He's saying things to get a rise out of them. I mean, it's intentional. But the fact remains, there is a lot of scary stuff in this country. Um, and it's not just in the South. Connecticut has a very large KKK population. There's a, there's a lot of groups, in the, even in this state, you know, progressive Northeast land. But uh, very, very good. I think it was on Fusion. Um, I'm sure it's online somewhere as well. Mm. I'll have to give that a watch. Um my takeaway of the last week has been uh, the Chapuense plane crash. Throughout the history of football since the Second World War, many kind of club teams and even national teams, their fortunes have been altered by uh, teams dying in, in plane crashes. Um, it's happened to the Zambian team and they were a team of great uh, young hopes who are going to about to potentially qualify for the first African Cup of Nations about 10 plus years ago and they, they all died. Um, it famously happened in the UK to Manchester United and there's the Munich air disaster. So this was the, the, mid, the mid 50s. Um, the team have gone to play, I believe in Italy and they've played a game in Italy. The plane uh, refuels in Munich, it shouldn't have taken off and didn't quite clear the runway, crashed back down, three quarters of the team died. Bobby Charlton, one of England's most decorated footballers, survived and so did the manager. And uh, the Busby, and that, that team was called the Busby Babes because they, they were so young. What happens is that Manchester United gets through that season by, ha by having loan players from other teams like Aston Villa, etc. And they become the nation's second favourite team. And then 10 years later, they win the championship and the whole country's kind of behind them because they know what that club and what that manager has actually been through. And, and though foot football fans don't really like to say this, but the reason why Manchester United are the biggest team in England is actually because of the sympathy that they got because of that crash. Now, um, many, many moons ago, I went to, um, I had an Italian girlfriend and went to Turin, um, so in like the late 90s, and I wasn't aware that uh, Torino, uh, which is the now second team of Turin, saying to Juventus, actually had exactly the same thing happen to them as what happened to Manchester United, though the trajectory of the team was completely the opposite. So Torino were the biggest team in Italian football pre the Second World War, then afterwards they go to play a European match, I believe in Portugal, on their way back, the plane's about to land in Turin and it crashed into the side of the mountain. Now. All the team is wiped out, uh, the manager, the reserve team, etc. They have to fulfill their fixtures by playing the youth team, who are famously called the boys, the La Rigazzi, and they only go and win the championship and have this wave of kind of sympathy. But it is the youth team that plays out the remaining fixtures and they still win the championship. Torino, as a team, 
have never done anything since. So instead of it building their reputation like it did for Manchester United some eight years later, it actually destroyed the club and forever they've been in the wake of Juventus. And it's just really, for me, looking at Chapuense and actually what's happened there, I, I always talk about football and how it can give a town, a city, a place, a real sense of identity and the fact that football is a massive soap opera. And just looking at the outpouring of, of support and will for this small, scrappy, under, you know, underdog team in Brazil. You know, you can't, it kind of feels like, an, dare I say, another legend w will be built. And, you know, you get these great kind of magnanimous things that the rest of the football firm are saying in Brazil, like they cannot be relegated for three years, etc., etc. But I, it's just the power of sport, but really football in terms of uh, being identified with a place, but also building wider narratives. And um, I just think it's uh, a wonderful and, and powerful thing. Now, uh, gentlemen, we have a couple of emails. Um, we, I did a couple of shows without you, uh, really to examine uh, Trump and look at it from different perspectives. And we've had quite a few emails, actually. You did shows without us? Well, oh, God. but funnily Knew enough, it. You, you were on the one, John. You were on the one. So you, you can shush. But we did do a couple without Rob. And one of the shows that we actually did was with a Trump supporter, somebody who explained uh, why he voted for Donald Trump. Now, before I get you, John, just to read out an extract of that uh, email in response to that show, I'd just like to say that um, David, who agreed to do that show with me, and I think we had a really good chat, um, has had quite a lot of online kind of hate mail. Now, the one thing which I'm really clear on in Mid-Atlantic is that in the best kind of 18th century enlightenment fashion is that we can disagree but it's all about kind of enlightened debate and actually just being quite quite cordial so if you have been a listener of this show uh please choose not to listen again if you've actually gone and emailed um shitty things to david david came on the show i completely not to really disagree with his reasons for voting for Trump but at least he did have somewhat of an erudite argument for it I would say wrong but what we're not going to do is troll him so please if you're one of those that listens to the show and then decided to email the guy in vile terms and and his boss because uh his boss at where he works at the university also got crappy emails please don't listen again um however um, John, why don't you read out a little extract from Sasha Davis, who's a professor in Australia, and his response to that show. Why I voted for Trump. I didn't have time to address the criticisms of the American electoral system, of which I'm hardly an expert, but I would make the point that giving a certain minimum weight to the different states that may exceed their population size is not unusual in federal institutions. The Australian constitution does something similar, and I believe the Canadian and Brazilian constitutions do as well. This is designed to allow citizens to balance their strong loyalties to the federal nation and local states, and to prevent the larger states always determining the outcome of events. It is frustrating when it results in the party that wins the popular vote not being the one to win office, but those regional loyalties matter, as I'm sure any Scot could tell you. Either way, I'm not sure how this is the fault of Donald Trump or his supporters. 
I must admit, I did answer this and my point was, number one, I, I completely agree and understand the reasons why many federal states actually do this. But one of the central planks of David's argument is the reason why um, small town America and the smaller states, the flyover states, feel excluded from the national discourse. He said it's because we don't have a voice. I made the point of bringing out the American electoral system, i.e. the Electoral College, to remind him that things are actually weighted more in their favour. So, of course, you know, Donald Trump didn't uh, design that system, but I made the point of saying that um, from the founding of the Constitution, small town stroke rural America has disproportionately been weighted had things weighted in its advantage. Now, would I be wrong, Mr. Monaco, in that uh, summation? Well, no, I mean, and they tried to balance it out at the beginning of when this is all created at the Constitution. I mean, yes, it's this is, you have less people in those areas and you want to give them a balanced voice. But at the same time, the Founding Fathers certainly didn't intend for, uh, how shall we say, a... a a, a greater voice for everyone, in a sense. Was it supposed to be an enlightened democracy? Let's just put it that way. It's not supposed to be the tyranny of the majority or the minority. Which is actually the reason why there's an electoral college in the first place, because that was going to be the ultimate break on the dirty, unwashed masses actually then deciding to have somebody elected to the presidency that the great and the good didn't actually like. So that was, you know, the electoral college is actually supposed to be another break on that, isn't it? Right. It's another it's another add on to the checks and balances. It's designed to protect us from a demagogue. It's designed to um, curtail the, uh, as you said it, it is the unwashed masses who would prefer bread and circuses to yeah, comprehensive tax reform. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, we had another email. Now, this is from Colin from Florida. It's a very long email, and I've just kind of just truncated this. Um, you talked about emoluments later, and I know that, uh, sorry, you talked about emoluments earlier, Rob, and emoluments are for foreign leaders to, uh, to give gifts to an American president. Um, this isn't quite talking about emoluments, but it's something kind of very similar, which is um, conflicts of interest. So this is Colin from Florida. Yep. I have one concern being a uh, Floridian it, is that if the Trumps want to build a hotel or condo in Miami, how do you tell the president? No, I predict he will give up in three years due to family problems and get out before the shit hits the fan and let the vice president take the blame. The Democrats will learn not to be too complacent. Make sure the next person has a good, clean background as much as possible and go young and go back to the old way of explaining things in black and white and clearly. Um, is that what's going to happen, John? Let, let's, let's deal with um, Trump and conflicts of interest first. Um, how can you have a man with all these business interests? And then I know he said, I'm not going to run my companies for the next four years. But his daughter and his son-in-law are sitting in cabinet meetings, aren't they? And they're running his companies. So um, how the hell can, can Americans be sure that their president isn't putting his own personal interests first. Well, they can't, but <laughs> what are they going to do about it? I mean, I, I read a thing a few weeks ago um, in which I said that a big problem America was going to face was the, the fact that it has now, it's going to have a president who doesn't seem to feel embarrassment 
And, you know, in, public shame is actually quite a good mechanism for keeping not just politicians, but keeping all of us in line to some extent. Um, and with a guy who just doesn't seem to have that reaction, it's going to turn out there's a lot of things uh, that are either that, that people don't do because they look bad as much as they don't do because they're illegal or whatever. And I think actually there's going to be a lot of stuff that Trump does that crosses that line because he just doesn't feel that kind of shame. So I don't know. I, I don't know what we can say other than, yeah, that's that was always a risk. Good luck with that, guys. <laughs> um, would you like to finish up, Mr. Mr. Monaco? Have you got anything to add just before we go on, just wrap this show up? And look I'm still surprised to, that... Hmm? that- well, I'm just so surprised that people are, are still developing these multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar plus uh, properties in, in Miami and Florida, knowing full well that in a couple of decades, I mean, it's already happening that the sea level is moving further and further inland. But I, I, I find that this always goes back to that John Steinbeck quote that this country is, is full of not necessarily uh, exploited pl- proletariat, but they think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires that well <laughs> why does it why does it matter that that trump has his business interests i wouldn't want to tell somebody telling me what to do if i was a businessman and they don't realize that while it's it's not cut and dry yet this is potentially unconstitutional and that inevitably leads to impeachment hearings you can't we fought a war against a monarchy so that we wouldn't have this kind of a situation so I think that if people are kind of holding, you know, forget the recounts and stuff like that. If you really are someone who is anticipating an impeachment sort of situation so far, this is the closest thing that may lead to it. Awesome. So then we're going to have President Pence. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) And on that note, folks, um, thank you for bearing with us through a rather long but I think somewhat enjoyable Mid-Atlantic. You can follow us on social media where we are Mid-Atlantic Show, specifically that is Twitter. You can go into Facebook and type in Mid-Atlantic Show. And our page, which I've kind of been neglecting for quite some time, is slowly starting to get a tiny bit of life. Um, Mr. John Ellis, if people want to follow you on social media, how can they do that? I am mostly to be found on Twitter, where I am John Elledge, which is J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E. And how about you, Mr. Monaco? Uh, you can find me on the also grossly neglected uh, Twitter account of myself, at Podcast History. You can follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Um, you can also email me if you want to uh, respond to anything which you heard on the show. Quite simply, I'm just Royfield at gmail.com. Um, I think that's just, been, just about been it. We'll see you all again in approximately 14 days' time. Cool. That was really good fun. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's good to be back. Ah, oh, it's good to have you back. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> 